0: better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't
1: have to think, and we way are live, folks, with episode 3277 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday morning, so let's just come out of the gate straight away with gloom and doom. Yeah, new week, new gloom, new doom. We're going to talk about the United States potentially, eventually anyway, losing the dollar as the global reserve uh, uh, financial instrument and what that would mean and what that would look like. And we're going to talk about how some things are being done right now that look like, you know, maybe the majority of the world's population would benefit from that. And maybe if they benefit from it, it's more important to them that they benefit than we benefit We'll talk about some reasons why it might not happen. We'll talk about what makes it harder to happen than I think some people think and then more likely to happen than most people think. I want to talk to you a little bit about exactly why this even matters or what the global reserve currency status is in the beginning. Then we'll do a little bit of housekeeping, and then we'll dig deep into this topic. How about that? So I, I, I like to try to explain this in a way that maybe is a little bit more concrete through analogy to people. So let's imagine that instead of the U.S. dollar being the reserve, the reserve currency of the United States, that we had a different form of a currency uh, that we used for all of our business in the United States. So let's say that we had a, a, a U.S. dollar that was backed by oranges. Stay with me here. This will make sense in a second. Well, who would benefit from that? Who would have a strategic advantage in the economy in the United States? Well, two states spring to mind heavily, and those would be Florida and California. They would have a massive trade advantage because they can produce oranges. They don't have to acquire them somewhere else. And then there's some states that would have limited uh, participation at the advantage level because they can produce at least some Oranges like Texas, Arizona, and a few others that have some areas in the states that can produce citrus. And so if let's just change that up, though, I guess Hawaii, too, right? Yeah. Let's change that up. Let's imagine that the only state in the United States of America capable of producing an orange was Florida. There was no California. California didn't grow oranges. Hawaii couldn't grow oranges. Texas, only Florida could grow oranges, how how big of an advantage would it be that when Vermont is doing business with Illinois for something that has nothing to do with the oranges, they had to convert their currency through uh, an exchange mechanism backed by oranges. You can see where Florida would have this massive advantage. Now let's imagine that Florida making the oranges to back the currency with can literally make as many oranges as they want. They, if they need another billion oranges this year, they just push a button and boom, 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 the oranges come out and back the currency. Now, you can see where Florida might be really interested in not having that change. If somebody came and said, hey, we've had Florida doing this for long enough with these orange bucks, you know, maybe we should be using lobsters to back our currency. Well, then, you know, some place like Massachusetts or Maine might be pretty hip on that because they have access to lobster in quantity. And you can see that maybe you wouldn't want that to happen if you were a Floridian. And you can see that everybody in the middle, let's say that you're in a place that doesn't have anything for currency at all of any use. Like, I don't know, Kansas and uh, corn, I guess. Right. But everybody can make corn. So it, it's it's not going to be not going to be feasible. So if you're in Kansas You might think, well, I don't really care about this, right? Just click your heels and go back home to Kansas. It'll be fine. Well, if you had a complete disruption in the trading economy within the country, you might have a problem. This is exactly how this all works for the United States right now. We have the ability to produce money whenever we want to. We can just print it. And, yes, all the other banks can too, but our money is the the back instrument for all international trade. We call it the petrodollar specifically because it's really the case with oil. And while countries occasionally do trade in their own currencies with each other, in general, almost all of the trade done in the world has a backing peg to the United States dollar. So this gives us a tremendous advantage. And it's one of the things that lets us keep printing the money the fact that people will take money, that's why you can print it. When people stop taking it, you print it, it doesn't matter. right? You get Zimbabwe. So the fact that we have this global currency status means that we can be far more irresponsible than if we didn't. So just let that sink in. And we'll come back to this in a minute. Before we do, I want to go ahead and remind you guys about our sponsors of the day. I have... uh an update for you guys from Paul Wheaton and his Kickstarter. I just wanted you guys to know about this. And what I really want you to know about is the is the stretch goals that he's had. So what's your stretch goal when you do a Kickstarter? So you go to a Kickstarter, you say, I need X amount of money to do this Y thing. And you get the money and you do the thing and everybody gets the thing that they were promised. And then everybody's happy, right? Well, if you... Start to realize, hey, we can do more. We can go further. Then what you start doing is you say, okay, we've made our goal. Here's some more stuff. And every time we hit another level, I'll add more to what we're giving away. That's what Paul's doing now because they're six x funded. Yeah, I said six x funded already. They're not even halfway done with the Kickstarter term yet. Uh, but here's what they've added. They set a forty thousand dollars stretch goal for the Greenwood apprenticeship course from Mortis and Tenon Magazine. Smash that goal. You get that too. Soil First Gardening Extended Edition by Anna has $45,000 goals $45, goal smashed. Saving the Life Keepers, it's a documentary on the new science of beekeeping. $50,000 goal to get that added to the $100 and up range, smash that goal. $55,000 goal is Kelly Hart's Sustainable Agriculture Movie, smashed, so you get that too. The Tiny House Magazine Complete 2022 set, 60 k smashed. That goes too for people that are contributing at $100 or more. Um goal was homegrown humus and bug-free gardening by Anna Hess. That goal was smashed, so that's going to be there. And now what they've set for the next goal is $70,000, golden goat herbals, herbalism, and fermented sodas video course and ebook. if you hit the $70,000 goal. And when I wrote this up this morning, they were at $67,000. So I think we're going to get there, $67,436. So, uh, it most likely that $70,000 goal is going to get smashed and there'll probably be some more, but this is why you might want to increase your, you might want to increase your contribution if you've already backed this goal at like 40 bucks or something like that, because all this extra stuff, you get that if you're at the $100 or up range. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys about ButcherBox. This is just the way, just a simple thing. Every month, a giant box of frozen meat appears at your door. You put it in your freezer. You eat the meat. See how cool that is? You don't have to go to the store. And it's really top-quality stuff. It's like having your own private shopper. You're getting grass-fed beef, pastured pork, pastured poultry, and some really great seafood, too. I love Butcher Box. They are the sponsor that I have that pays me in product. That's right. I get paid in meat, not money when it comes to uh getting my stuff from uh butcher Lock. So anyway, I want to, I want to dig off into this now and talk a little bit about the setup for this to happen. And I'm going to start off not with some things that recently happened that hint at the world moving in this direction, at least exploring this direction of maybe we don't need the dollar to be the world currency anymore. I want to start off with an entity or organization that I've been talking about since 2008 when I started this show. I remember talking about the BRICS, the R-I-C-S, BRICS Nations, in 2008. So this is not new. This is a strategic alliance. And BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And these are... One of the most rapidly growing, or at least at the time more most rapidly growing economies in the world uh, for a variety of different reasons. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what the goal of the BRICS nations are. Because when we start digging into, well, what happens if the dollar loses its reserve currency status? I think it would be interesting to say, if the dollar lost its 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 global currency status, would this goal of a BRIC nation be more easily reachable for these nations? Okay, would they have a greater potential to to fulfill their stated goals? And this isn't like you know we're, we're going peeling the 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 lid off of something like the uh, like one of these organizations like uh, I don't know something slipped out of my head uh, the Build Burger Group or something like that. Uh, or Council on Foreign Relations or something. This is straight up out in the open. Um, like, you don't have to dig for this at all to find out what these the goals that, that these nations have together are, because they stated them in their charter where they formally agreed to work together toward them. And there's four main goals. And they are, one, promoting economic growth and development. Pretty noble goals. So China, Russia, India, you know, South Africa, Brazil. They basically said, we're going to have this pact, And our goal is that if we work together, we can grow economically faster than if we stay alone, that we we should be partnered to this goal. Enhancing geopolitical influence. What is geopolitical influence? Geopolitical influence is the ability to get another country to do or not do a thing without actually saying, hey, if you don't do what we say, we're going to drop a bomb on you, right? That's geopolitical (laughs) influence. We also have another term for it. It's soft power. So the BRIC Alliance wants stronger, soft power, geopolitical influence. They want to address common challenges. And this is a laundry list of crap, everything from climate change to social inequity and whatever. And you think China really gives two squats about global warming? When they're building, like, I think they're building a new coal, coal, coal electric plant, like every 2.5 days, there's a new plant coming online in China, right? So, no. What they really mean is that they want cover for why they're doing what they're doing. This is, this is the goal that's kind of meaningless. It's kind of meaningless because these nations also, what makes their alliance work is Russia and China for instance are have some similarities as countries but they're also very very different very very different and the entire BRICS alliance is kind of from a standpoint of we don't tell you what to do in your you know country and you don't tell us what to do in ours we just work together for commerce right and then the last one is strengthening cooperation and partnerships Well, what does that mean? That means to become a big enough force in the world that you have more ability to leverage yourself into deals and treaties with countries outside of your collective group. Like if you you work with us, then you also get access to. That's what this is. And this is the reason I'm bringing this up first. This is the modus operandi of the United States geopolitically. This is what we do. We are always saying that we are, we want to work with your country to help improve, you know, your economic growth and development. Here's all these grants and all this shit we have so that you could be more successful because we really care about you. Yeah. We always say that we, uh, We we, we are the leader in the world, and we have to act like it. We basically are the the world's police force, right? That's our geopolitical influence. Common challenges, we'll use any virtue signaling thing we have to, to form some form of alliance with any country that benefits us in any way to have it. And when I say alliance here, I don't mean military alliance necessarily. I mean trade deals. I mean whatever, getting the ability for us to put our assets in your country, what have you. This is what we do. And strengthening cooperation and partnerships. That's just more bullshit, really, when you think about it. Strengthening partnerships? We, use, we throw around terms like partnership all the time. But what we're really is we're out for ourselves. And we are able to do that and get away with it because of the reserve status of the United States dollar backing basically all trade in the world. And then an unlimited ability to print it. Now, what made me decide I wanted to do this today was a four-minute segment that was on Fox News that I'm going to play for you guys uh, right now. And I'm going to tell you before I play this, I think that the person talking, the lady talking, goes way over the top, way to the extreme of how bad it would really be, uh, what have you, but it's also not all wrong. And we're going to come back and dig deeper into this. But the reason that I I did a little bit on the BRICS nations first is because there's some discussion of that concept in this video. But the other side of it is, if you understand the stated goals of the BRICS nations, and if you think about who they are, and specifically two of them being Russia and China, and you think about some of the other things going on in the world that we'll talk about in a minute, like China going into the Middle East and negotiating a peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia in, in their proxy war in Yemen, while well, we stood around with our thumbs up our own button, literally have constantly interfered with that peace process. You, it really starts to paint a broader picture. So again, don't get too worked up about what this woman's going to say. She's about half right.
0: i could announce this week that Russia will begin using the Chinese yuan – uh, to, for international payments instead of the dollar. Saudi Arabia is also in talks with Beijing to do the same thing. Speaking of Saudi Arabia, meanwhile, they are in talks uh, with Iran as well to consider an economic alliance with China and Russia. And they can even be joining the BRIC countries, which is an acronym for these countries here, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. These countries all have emerging economies. So what happens if our economy and the U.S. dollar are no longer the world's dominant currency? Former assistant treasury secretary and host of the Monica Crowley podcast, Monica Crowley, is here to weigh in. Monica, great to see you this morning. Uh, let's start right there. What happens if these emerging economies move away from the U.S. dollar towards the Chinese yuan?
2: Well, good morning, Will. It's great to be with you. And it's really hard to overstate exactly how catastrophic the abandonment of the U.S. dollar would be. Um, as the world's uh, global reserve currency. Look, since the end of World War II, the dollar has been the safe place to go, and it's been backed up by a couple of things. It originally was backed up by gold, but President Nixon took took us off the gold standard, so there's no hard asset backing up the dollar anymore for the last 50 years. But also it's been backed up by the strength and economic power of the United States, and the fact that oil has always been traded in dollars. If that were to end, that would mean the end of the U.S. dollar. Look, th- there is a perfect storm happening right now, Will. The, the world's uh, reserve currency being that, uh, having that status has been a real privilege, but we've abused the privilege by wholly reckless monetary and fiscal policies over many years, certainly over the last couple of years, which has really devalued the dollar on top of that now you do have this perfect storm of biden's weakness his war on american domestic energy production the ukraine war and as you point out because of all of these things we've got america's enemies led by china forming a new economic block and all it would take at this point now because we're at this pivotal moment will is Mm -hmm. for saudi arabia who has indicated that they're open to this, to say, you know what, we're going to be open to considering other currencies to trade in oil. If that were to happen, there would be a complete implosion of the global economic system, but certainly the American economic system. And if that were to happen, you'd be looking at sky high inflation, just raging Weimar Republic kind of inflation. If you think inflation is bad now, just wait. But more importantly, we would lose our economic dominance and we would right. lose our superpower status.
0: Uh, Monica, the world's reserve currency you said it's a privilege for the United States for the dollar to have been the world's currency. What how does that relate to each individual American? How has that changed or impacted or improved our lives throughout the last several decades?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's given the United States incredible dominance um, in, in the world in terms of the economic system and in terms of trade. It's kept prices down. Mm. So whether it's energy prices, whether it's your food prices, the the entire global economic system is reliant on the safe and secure dollar. But that is no longer true again because we've been printing money like crazy and devalued right. uh, the power of the dollar and the value of the dollar. But on top of it now again oil is the critical linchpin of this. If Saudi Arabia decides to join with America's enemies here and start trading oil in different currencies, that is going to undermine the entire global economic system and here at home you know what it's going to mean for us it's going to mean raging inflation so much worse than anything we have ever experienced Will, and I'll tell you they're setting it up so that they can then come to the rescue by introducing central bank digital currencies if they were to do that and the United States already has a pilot program that means the loss of your individual economic freedom because the government will have total access and control of everything you buy and sell and the ability to turn it off like wow. that.
0: Ominous warning. I hear you. Saudi Arabia is the tip. All right. All right. You get it. It's end of times. Biblical
1: stuff, man. Dogs and cats living together. Raining cats and dogs having sex on the way down. Giving birth to puffy kittens when they hit the puddle. It's just it's over. It's if if Saudi Arabia sells one barrel of of oil to China and takes Chinese currency for it, or even just indicates that they're open to taking other currencies. It's the end of the world as we know it. All right. You do get that that's bullshit, I hope. Now, before I get into attacking this person a little bit, understand she ain't all wrong that light at the end of this tunnel is Probably a central bank digital currency in some form or shape. And I ain't saying it wouldn't be bad for us because it would be bad for us, right? But this idea that if anybody does business in the world in currency other than dollars, the world ends is so typical of the pattern by now. You should see it from a thousand miles away, right? This idea, like, it, 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 it it's the same kind of, like, logic that led us into, oh, I don't know a war that cost 58,000 Americans their lives called the Vietnam Conflict. If Vietnam falls, it'll be a domino theory, and every country in Asia will become communist tomorrow. Like, it's just this idea that this can't happen in any way. Like, the United States must always be in charge of everything, because the world cannot... Function without us were that important. That's what she's actually saying here. Okay. What really happens though? A lot. It would hurt Florida to lose the orange dollar, right? And it will hurt us to lose the global dollar. The dollar is the globalized currency in the world right now. Before we go into what happens, I think we also need to look at what else is going on in the strategic moves that are being done. We have a tendency in America to think even when we like we're if we're politically polarized to one side or the other, and we detest the other side because a lot of people are right. Um, We still think we're better than everybody else. And even our shitty people are better than your good people. Like this is just the mindset that America has, that we're smarter, that we're faster, that we're better. We've been raised having American exceptionalism of the worst and most fictitious kind poured on to us. We can do better than anybody else at anything. We're the best in medicine. We're the best in science. We're the best in, you know, media. We're the best in everything. We're actually the best in a lot of things. We're not the best in everything. There are competent people that live in other countries. There really are. And one thing we always need to understand, when we're, especially when we're dealing with any nation, Friendly, adversarial, enemy, I don't care which. Any nation out of the Asian theater, they're, they're, these nations don't do things foolishly or stupidly. It doesn't mean I'm defending their actions. I'm just telling you they're not stupid and they're not incompetent. And every decision is made thinking long term about what the strategy does for them and their agenda, and their goals. They're always playing chess. Always. So what happened is China just, I mean, right in front of the whole world, walked into the Middle East and had more progress toward peace in the Middle East than the U.S. has ever gotten close to in the last 10 years. I guess the Abraham Accords, give give the Orange Man credit, were a pretty good move, too. But this is... uh. This is a shooting war. I saw people don't understand it was going on here. And because the, the TV doesn't tell you this stuff. The nation of Yemen has had a civil war going on for quite a while. And you're back to the old Sunni Shia divide in the Middle East. And then you've got actors on the outside supporting one side or the other. You've got the Saudis supporting their side. And you've got the Iranians supporting their side and providing weapons and money and materials to their sides in Yemen. We call this a dun-dun-dun proxy war. See, we're not the only countries that fight proxy wars. So Iran and um, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, of course, being one of our main trading partners and supposedly our ally, have been fighting this proxy war now for quite a while. And China went in and said, you know, this isn't really good for anybody. This isn't really helping anybody. Like no matter what happens in Yemen long term, it doesn't really change your life for the better. Like you won't win because your side wins in Yemen. And even if your side wins, what does that mean? What does that look like? How stable is Yemen going to be? if this keeps going this way and is it stability of this, this nation that separates the two of you guys, it kind of important to you. Isn't that why you're involved in the first place? Maybe we could figure this out. Maybe we could all just get along. And with China at the head of negotiating table, Saudi Arabia and Iran said, okay, let's give it a shot. Now I'm going to tell you, this is not like some big win that just happened. They went in, they didn't know they, These kinds of deals, when everybody comes together, they're 90 percent there or further already. China had this all worked on the back end before they came out and did it publicly. But what this did is it just took the United States was clearly the foreign power with the greatest amount of influence in the Middle East. Not as much anymore. Not as much anymore. This was a strategic move. This was a strategic move by the nation of China to say we are leaders in the world and we care about peace. You don't have to believe them, but that's what they stated. That was the move. That's the statement. That's what the goal was to say to the world, look, America says they want peace, but they're the ones dropping bombs on you guys all the time. We don't have no Chinese military bases in Iran or Saudi Arabia or anywhere in the Middle East. We came in, we were a third party media mediary. We worked with you guys. You guys have a deal that's in the works. Now the piece is yours, you know, to, to lose if you don't stick to it. This is a huge move. And at the same time, they're strengthening the relationship heavily with Russia. And I, I talked about this last week. Didn't you think they would? I mean, anybody who, who could not have seen that coming is just stupid and they probably work for Joe Biden. If you take away Russia's ability to do commerce with half the world, do you think that somebody like Vladimir Putin is just going to sit there and say, OK? Or do you think they're going to find a way to do business? And so now you've already got this BRICS alliance in place. You already have the two key nations aligned with it. And they are like, oh, I can't believe that they're you know getting closer to each other. And Russia says they're going to use the, the Chinese want. Well, because they're going to trade with China. That's going to be their main trading partner going forward. And again, I don't know how anybody is surprised by that. So let's talk about now the fear and doom lady. If, if Saudi Arabia sells like 10 barrels of oil to China for Chinese money, the world ends, right? Wasn't all wrong. She's just overstating the thing. You have to – when somebody starts invoking something like Weimar Germany, you have to immediately question their competence or their morals. It's one or the other, right? Because there's so much around that particular incidents in history that most people aren't aware of. Like, do you know what, what the, what the period that immediately followed the Weimar Republic was referred to? The golden years. Weimar didn't last very long. Like, so the gloom and doom that they bring when they say that if you don't know the whole story, it's already disingenuous. But the other thing is you can have nations surely use their own currencies with each other without the whole world just exploding. But there is a lot of leverage in play around the world that the U.S. leverages the status for. And so, again, I want you to think, here's the four goals again of the BRIC alliance. Promote economic growth and development, enhance geopolitical influence, address common challenges, and strengthen cooperation and partnerships. I sat down today and I tried to distill the four most salient points of what would happen if the U.S. lost this, this privilege that we have, which is getting to tell the rest of the world how money works, because that's really what it is. The first thing that would happen is a decreased demand for U.S. assets. A decreased demand. People, would, In other words, it would be dollar and bond dumping. This is time for a little bit of a talk about the banking system again, and to make you understand how freaking screwed the banking system in the West is, but specifically in America. The banks can't cover the deposits at all right now. Now, I know a lot of you are switched on enough to know the way that bank reserve statuses work and all, and you know that that was always the case, but it's so much more the case right now than it's ever been, and here's why, so the Fed, trying to keep the economy red hot for all the years that it was able to do so, you guys know, have cut interest rates to almost nothing, almost almost paying you to take a loan, it's so cheap, right, and they did that for, well, since Obama was around, and really going back to Bush, right, like, so it's a long time that that was able to be held in place, and recently, due to inflation, they've had to start increasing the rates. Well, these rates are not just your rates. They're everybody's rates. And there's when you hear like a prime rate or something like that, each of those numbers is in a different world. So a bond's rate is different than a mortgage's rate or something. But the underlying rate at the federal level is where all the other rates are derived from. So as we went into the COVID scandemic, They told the banks, look, we're going to stuff money with the economy, but you guys need to, you guys need to be prepared and you guys need to have reserves, right? So loan the money out, but also have reserves. And here's a shit ton of money. Well, then the banks took the money, right? But it's not free money. They owe it. Yeah. And they took their depositors' money and they did what the Federal Reserve told them to do. They put it into a reserve status. In other words, they didn't go buy fuel for their jets with it. They didn't pay bonuses with it. They put it into the gold standard, except that it wasn't gold, of financial reserves for the banks. U.S. government bonds, treasury bonds. Okay, but those bonds were paying a very small interest rate and many of them were quite long term. See, you're borrowing the money for 0.9 percent and you're getting one point one percent in arbitrage. It's fine. It's fine until it isn't. Until it isn't until the rates go up and you're sitting on a five or a 10 year bond that has four, six years left. Until it reaches maturity when you can cash it in for its face value. So what do you have to do with that bond? You can't just cash it in and get the money back. When you bought the five-year bond, you agreed to hold it for five years. and And the Fed or whoever issued the bond, depending on what bond it is, gave you an interest rate in exchange for that. So normally what happens if you want out of a bond early, you sell the bond to somebody else who's willing to pay pay you what it's worth today in exchange for the remainder of the of of the gains on it in the future. Yeah, that's how you do it. So if the rates on the bonds go up. For a current bond, why would I buy a bond from you? If I can go buy a bond for four percent. Right. And tie my money up for a two year bond. Why would I go, why would I pay a premium to buy your bond out early that's paying a half a percent? And the answer is I wouldn't. So when I have money and you need money and you're holding this bond, you have to wait till it gets to maturity to get, get value on it. You're screwed and I know it. And the market does what the market does and people start bidding that price down. Because, sure, I'll buy your bond that I have to wait three years, two years, whatever it is, to get my money out of it. But I'm going to make 20 percent on it. How am I going to make 20 percent? I'm going to pay you 20 percent less than what it's worth. Or I'm going to pay you 30 percent or four. I'm going to pay you as little as I possibly can because now I'm tying my money up and I'm waiting to get that money back. So I'm buying that bond at a discount. It's like think of it like you lease a car for three years. You drive it for a year. And you, you don't want to drive it anymore. The company doesn't want it back, right? You agree to it. So you have to go sell your lease to somebody else. Well, what if they started making that car? Like, let's say it was a really in-demand car when you leased it a year ago. And they were, they were only made, you know, a couple hundred of them a year. And now you need to sell your lease for whatever reason. Your life circumstances have changed, Yeah. And so you decide you want to sell the lease out to somebody else but the car company is now making a lot more of that model and a person can go get a brand new lease on it for less than you paid on yours. They know you're screwed. The only way you're going to get out of it is they're going to they're going to buy it at a big discount over what they could get a new one for. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And that's that's how these banks ended up in such deep shit. Now, think about the fact that if we lose reserve currency status, if people don't want the bonds across the whole world. See, one of the reasons this is so valuable to us is it's a constant way for us to keep having money come in that we can borrow real money that we can borrow from real other countries and things like that. There's a lot of countries and a lot of companies that are so large they need a place to park reserves. And they can only have so they only buy so much gold or they don't want to hold so much of their own currency because they're printing their own currency and they want security and safety. So that has always been U.S. bonds. Well, what happens if you lose the reserve status and what's just happened to a few banks here happens to banks all over the place? You can see where that might be a problem. But let's think about this. Decreased demand for U.S. assets. How does that play off the BRICS goals? Promoting economic growth and development for them, not us. Enhancing geopolitical influence, addressing common challenges, and strengthening cooperation and partnerships. It's better for them all the way across the board if it's bad for us. Next, you would have increased inflation. Now, her immediately going to why more Zimbabwe, whatever, maybe not. But, you would be begging for the inflation of the first year and a half of Biden. That 8, 10% real world inflation in the 20 percentile range would look golden compared to this. Now, let me explain something that why I don't like the term hyperinflation the way it's thrown around by economists and a lot of people that should know better. Hyperinflation has a definition. It is not a randomly, you know, generated term that means whatever you want it to mean on whatever day that you use it. Okay. It's not like picking your gender. This actually is concrete and knowable. Okay. Yeah. So that definition is one of two ways it's defined. 50% inflation consecutively for three months in a row. That's hyperinflation. That's one threshold. The other threshold, because sometimes it doesn't take that long to get there, is a thousand thousand percent annualized inflation. So fifty and fifty and fifty and fifty, or a thousand annualized—that's hyperinflation. So when somebody says hyperinflation, and we have hyperinflation? No, we don't. You can't, in your wildest dreams, understand what that looks like. Okay, that's the the item that's a dollar. Today is a dollar fifty at the end of the month, right? But then next month you add seventy five cents to that the dollar fifty, and it keeps going. That's hyperinflation. twenty percent inflation a year bad, really bad. hyperinflation it is not. So when you hear me push back on hyperinflation, I'm not saying it's okay. We would have high inflation you might even cross into hyperinflation on that loss. It would also depend on how that loss came. Would it be over time or would it be gradually then suddenly? And something like this, and as we wrap up today, you'll understand more and more about why it would have to be a decoupling across time, not an instant thing. Because a lot of nations that would benefit from it long term would also suffer from it short term. There's a lot of ways we have tentacles into a lot of things with this right now. But increased inflation. Now, if you're the BRICS alliances, increased inflation for the United States is good for you. It's good for you. Yeah. Weakened U.S. geopolitical power. Why? Well, it would weaken our soft power. How much are we able to influence in the world with a blank check? And I know everybody's upset about how much money we're giving to Zelensky right now. And we're actually paying Ukrainian government workers pensions with America's money in foreign aid to Ukraine. I know you're upset about that. At least you should be. But I don't think the average person is even 1% cognizant of how much foreign aid this country doles out to how many countries and how many places and in how many ways and how little we actually give a flying shit what that money does on the ground at the other side. All we're doing is we are buying vassal states. That's all we actually care about. We want to have a military base in this country. We don't want this country doing business with that country. That's geopolitical influence and everything like that. And we do it with money more than we do it with our military. Way more. If you've never um, read the book or listened to the videos, Uh, from the guy Confessions of an Economic Hitman, you really should. You really should understand what this country can do with a few million bucks, let alone a few billions of dollars. But if we don't have global reserve status and we can't just print our money at will and maintain some level of value in it by our own control and decision-making and other nations aren't forced to accept dollars – for, for international trade, especially on the petroleum market, you see where we might have an issue as far as, you know, c- continuing to be basically the bully on the block telling everybody what to do. Now, I'm just going to say, I think enhancing geopolitical influence is one of the goals of the BRIC nations. And we now have pretty much two two our two primary adversaries turning into economic butt buddies together, running this thing. So if you want your geopolitical influence to increase, it is necessary for someone else's to decline. So this one, more than any of the four bullet points, there's a literal bookend, you know, a cross connect between they want one thing, we would lose the thing, and they would gain it by proxy. So you can see where they might want this to happen. And next there would be more volatility in the global markets. Yeah, more volatility. We provide economic stability. If you had a degree from Stanford, you'd understand this. Or maybe maybe you wouldn't. Um, so this is, you know, economic voodoo language. The United States, being the world's reserve currency, makes pricing for countries doing business with each other, less disruptive, more stable. We or I'm helping. OK, <laughs> let me explain what that would actually mean. Since, let's say, India might be doing business with a country like well, uh, Yemen. They would have to determine for themselves which of the two currencies they were going to use Yemeni's currency or Indian rupees. I don't know what the Yemeni's currency is. Um, They would have to figure that out and they would have to price it based on their own economies, their own relative currency strength without consideration of what the dollar's relative strength is against their currency. It would be, the Russian ruble versus the Chinese one, if it's those two nations, that they would have to figure out, well, how much do we have to charge for this? And how much do we take in payment for this? And how much do we give you for it? Right. Right. How, how, how you do that is what we call price discovery. And the reality is, if if you are the banker. You're skimming off every transaction in every place of the world. Yeah. That's, that's the whole point of being the banker, so you can skim. It's like I can run a casino and never lose money. I'll never lose money. I just take two, two bucks out of every pot, two bucks out of, off the craps table every time a dice is thrown, right, two bucks off of the roulette table, two bucks off of, you know, all the poker tables. Just take a little bit out of every hand, right? The The games of chance like roulette instead of taking two bucks – The odds are stacked in my favor as long as I have enough players. I'll never lose. That's what the U.S. is doing. Now, in other words, nations are unable to actually have price discovery on the goods and services that they export because we're altering the value of the product by controlling and having a solitary currency that's used that we can manipulate whenever we want to. It's it is just like the mafia. K-Box says just like the mafia. This is this is ex this is exactly how the mafia works. The mafia is actually more honest. They tell you that they'll break your legs and, and you believe them. They don't pretend that you have rights that they don't really respect, right? Um so I just look at this and go, decreased demand for US assets, increased inflation, weakened ge- geopolitical power, and more volatility in the global markets is to exactly be the exact opposite of what the brick nations are looking for. This actually would enable all of their goals at a much more rapid rate. And one of the things that we have to really ask ourselves is, let's say this lady's right. Let's say that the the gloom and doom lady is actually understudy. It's as bad as she says and worse. There really is puppy kittens falling out of the sky if this happens. Okay, so what you're telling me then is, Our entire economy, our entire place in the world of being the most dominant superpower that's ever existed, she even said we would no longer be a superpower, is 100% contingent on us holding the rest of the world economically hostage forever. That's what you're saying. The fact that we have the most powerful military in the world, it's not really that. It's not really that, because you can see all the places we use that, and it didn't quite work out for us. What we really have is a death hold on the globe economically, and in some ways we do, because we are the global banker. But at the same time, in putting ourselves into this position, we have taken a position where the only thing that our two greatest geopolitical adversaries, China and Russia, have to do to win a war against our country, without firing a shot, is Russia sells natural gas to China for Chinese yuan. That's it. That's all they have to do. Just do a couple transactions like that, and America fails. That's either a lie, or it's actually far more concerning than it's the truth. That That's the position we've put, in our, put ourselves into. And to a large degree, she's right. That is the position we're in. You kind of have to ask why they haven't done it yet. We'll get to that here in a second. Because that's right now. China specifically, but China and Russia together, could bring the United States to its knees in weeks with no weapons, no military, no cyber attacks, nothing. All China has to do is go, no antibiotics for you. We didn't learn anything from COVID. We're still getting like 80% of the raw materials that we make antibiotics with and many other medications from China. All China has to do is not send it to your medical industry is the shit right there. If they made this financial move, if China said, hey, from now on, we're doing business in our currency. As far as how it relates to your currency as a trading partner, negotiable. We'll do that with anybody, you know. Who are you, Montenegro? Yeah, we'll talk to you. But we'll we'll figure, you you use euros? Yeah, we'll talk about it. But we're just not taking dollars. We're just not. And by the way, United States, we're not taking dollars from you either. We're not taking dollars from you. All that shit you buy every month that we send in all those giant container ships over on, we're not, like, that's all they have to do. And we are crippled. Never mind how much of this country China already owns, and I mean physically owns factories and installations and things like that, stuff that they actually own, legally own in our country on top of it. So why not? How likely is it? Well, here's the truth about how likely this is. This is inevitable. Notice I gave no timeline when I said that though. And the truth is I don't have a timeline. We could be one way or another the global reserve currency for another 100 years or another 100 days? I don't know. I'm not going to pretend that I do know, and nobody knows. Nobody knows. Because nobody knows what everybody that's involved in in this whole mess is going to do because it's painful for everyone. This wouldn't be – it would be logistically easy to do for, for China to basically sink the whole ship right now, but it wouldn't be exactly painless for them either. But the reason I say that it's inevitable is that we've had global reserve currencies for as long as there's been international trade, and every one that ever existed until the current one failed eventually. Every single one of them failed. And there's no reason to believe that our system which is among the worst ever constructed from a structural foundation standpoint would last forever so sooner or later of course it will fail and this is where i think a lot of americans have a full on arrogance issue and which it's what professor cj calls trapped in a permanent present Everything has pretty much always been the way that it is and always will be. Yeah, sure, there'll be new browser features or technology or whatever, but the overall macro, of course America's the greatest nation that ever existed. Of course we're in charge of everything, and of course we always will be. There's no reason to believe that whatsoever. The other thing we have is, what like, well, I meant it when I say this is probably the worst system of economics as far as monetary creation and supply that was ever created by man. And it's because it was never supposed – this was a – this whole Federal Reserve experiment, this whole central bank experiment, is like a a comedy of errors going forward. So what initially happens is we need someone to take control of this. I'm going back to 1913 here. Because there's all of these recessions and depressions and booms and busts. And we need something that we can just level this out and prevent – like one one entity from constricting monetary supply or one from inflating it ridiculously. So we need this centralized banking system, right? We need a centralized banking system. So what we'll do is, well, of course, the bank should run a centralized banking system. So we'll put this board of governors together. There'll be a chairman. He'll be appointed by the president. So it looks like the government has something to do with it. And we'll manipulate and control, but we'll even things out so we don't get these depressions. That was 1913. We all know what happened in 1929. And I don't think most Americans say, we should actually probably do a series on the Depression. Most people today do not understand how bad it was or how long it lasted. It was the 1960s before the all-time highs in the stock market in the late 20s came back. The 1960s, I think it was you know, World War II and then it was over. No, it was the 1960s before, if you had held all the way through, it was the 1960s before you got your money back. Just the stock market. There's a lot of other shit that we could dig into with that. But So that happens. Then the United States ends up in a depression, which isn't supposed to happen. And, and it, 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 as much as this has been explained a thousand different ways, the simple explanation was the people running the banks And the people running the government sat down and looked at it together and said, there just isn't enough gold to do everything. We don't have enough supply. And some genius said, I got an idea. What if we can increase the supply by about a third? And everybody looked at everybody. Where are you going to get a third, 30 percent, 33 percent more gold? Where? Oh, no, we don't need more gold. See, they realized nobody was really using gold anyway. In other words, very few people were going to the store and pulling out a couple of gold coins and paying for something and getting returned. People were using bills. So we'll just outlaw the ownership of gold for private citizens and say it's really important to the safety of the country. And everybody's like, they'll never buy that. Oh, they'll do whatever we tell them to. Well, okay, we'll try it. And what we'll do is we'll revalue the dollar against the gold. And change the ratio so there'll be more dollars to pay for all the shit that we feel like we need to do to get out of this depression. So they did it. That's phase one. Then by the 1960s, they're going, hey, you know how we didn't have enough gold? We got enough gold now, don't we? Well, we'll get to that. That's becoming a problem, too. We got a different problem. Well, what's the problem now? Well, we're still a bimetallic economy and you know the stuff we make the dimes and the quarters and shit out of? Yeah, we're running out of that. We don't have enough of that for the pocket change of America. And somebody said, but just change it to, you know, junk metal. Oh, they'll never let us do that. Yeah, they will. Just do it. Somebody pop Kennedy. They'll be paying attention to that. We'll get it done. And then we'll put them on a, 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 a silver coin in the future, but it'll only be 40%. That's kind of poetically ironic, isn't it? Yeah. So then that happened. So then they devalued the silver out of the currency. Then in 1971, we were actually being economically attacked by our ally, the French government. And they were basically, every time they came into the possession of US dollars, not wanting to hold them, were turning them in in exchange for gold. This is a problem, so we just won't use gold at all anymore. Then in 1975, and you really can't talk about gold price versus the dollar without including 1975, because in 1975, that important thing that I talked about earlier, price discovery, was able to happen again because Americans were able to physically own gold again. And if you look at the price of gold to the dollar, When we separated from the gold standard in 71 under Nixon, there wasn't that much movement in gold pricing until 75 when people could actually buy it again, private citizens. And then we saw how far the decoupling actually went from 1933, I guess it was, up until the current day of 1975, and it was massive. And this is the economic system we have. You have to think about that. Everything I just told you led to us having what we have today and us being proud of it and saying it's the best we can do. So basically, we have an economics system when it comes to the monetary creation method by which we create money that is, is the product of multiple failures. And instead of replacing the monetary system, we just continue to go further into what made it a failure in the first place. So there's no doubt that this has to freaking. And eventually. And that it also makes sense that since it is such a flawed method of economics, that at some point, whatever replaces it would be dramatically different. Now, the problem with that is it's a pretty good way to sell stupid people on a CBDC. But we'll have to wait and see what what exactly it gets replaced with. But it is inevitable. And the question really is when. And so to understand the when, we have to ask ourselves, well, why hasn't this already happened? Do you think China wouldn't like the ability to become the number one economic power in the world tomorrow? Because that's what they would be. Do you think that a lot of these other countries that we don't ever talk about don't have some animosity against America just because we're always in control? They wouldn't just rather see a a more free market globally. You do business in whatever currency you want with whoever you want. If you want dollars and I want to pay dollars, fine. If we want to do business in gold or silver or freaking crawfish, we'll do however we want. You know, there's a lot of people that feel that way. In a lot of little countries all over the world that we never even think about in our arrogance, that maybe just America shouldn't be in charge of everything anymore. But what actually prevents it is a lot of those nations also benefit a great deal from the petrodollar system. And it's less important that when I I say this, you understand what I mean. I don't mean this little XYZ country, so we don't get bogged down into that nation and baggage that it might have. We'll just call it XYZ nation. I don't mean that the people of XYZ nation necessarily benefit or don't benefit. They may or may not. What I mean is the people in power in that country, the people that are the cantillionaires in their own country, the people that are closest to the monetary supply, the people that dole out contracts to their their family and to their supporters so that they can stay in power, those people, the bankers in those countries, the the giant corporations in those countries who receive the contracts. I mean, those people benefit the oligarchy and the bureaucracy benefit highly through United States foreign aid and through a lot of things that we don't actually put in the foreign aid category, but they really are. In other words, our companies opening up factories in those countries, et cetera, which we can only do because we have an unlimited amount of money to do it with. There's just no limit to how much money we can print. I know that like like a lot of you're going, Jack's lost his mind. If they print enough, it'll be it will be uh, you know uh, hyperinflation. It will be wilder. Yes, but we could still do it to ourselves if we wanted to, which means we can keep walking this dance of just how much influence can we pedal and buy without going over the, the edge, and that's what we've been doing. So a lot of nations benefit highly. And so what you're now doing, think of it like there's a lot of professions out there where people in the profession know the profession sucks and they don't really want to do it anymore, but it's how they earn their money. So they won't quit, they won't leave and they'll defend it even though they know better. Yeah. All kinds of places like that. You go into a, a, a company and you talk to people that work in that company and go, Hey, is there waste in this company? They'll just start telling you about all the waste. And you come up with a plan. They'll be on board with your plan to cut that waste right up until you're like, what exactly is it that you do here? What, do you, what is it you say that you do here again, right? I talk to the customers for the engineers because the engineers suck with people. Don't you understand me? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And as soon as it was like, hey, I think we can get rid of you, then you would hear this litany of reasons that that's impossible and the company would fall apart 50,000 person company, but if you let me go, everything's good. Because no one wants to be the one to get cut. So a lot of these countries, even though they know that long term, their nation might be better off if we weren't in control of everything. They would have to go through some stuff that's not exactly comfortable. And if they're not thinking about the next or third or fourth generation, and they're not thinking about themselves, this is why we've done it. We've entangled in this web across the world all of these global uh, leaders and all of these economic leaders that would be seriously hurt if this was cut off. Our military, despite being weak is still incredibly powerful. There's a lot of nations that are afraid of our military. There's a lot of nations who feel very safe because of our military. They don't, they don't worry about their own national defense because they know that they are a, a legitimate ally of this country And they just assume that if anybody jacks with them, we're just going to blow the shit out of them. Whether we are or not, they assume that. And here's the bigger thing. The other nations figure that out, figure that as well. So there's a whole lot of people in the world who don't maybe like some of the things the U.S. does, but they're like, you know what? It's not really our problem because they don't really tell us what to do in our country. So there's a lot of these more advanced economies and more advanced nations that are very socialist, that are able to pay for all their socialist bullshit because they're not spending money to defend their borders because we do it for them through things like NATO. So those countries don't necessarily want our military strength to go down either. Right? And then there's the ones that are just afraid of what we could do with it. And we do have the ability to enforce a fiat dollar mainly because we have a blue water navy unlike anything that's ever been seen in the world, whether you want to believe that or not whether you like it or not it's true and the system because of these two things is highly entrenched there's so many places where it's not so easy to just decouple and change there's entire you know multi trillion dollar economies running through systems like the swift system that we threw russia out of and you just got to think of well what would it take to change all this and if you're if you're the ceo of a company and you're making you know $50 million a year plus bonuses, well, I don't want something to mess that up, right? I know it sucks that we have to sacrifice a virgin once a month and cut out her heart and throw her down the steps and set her on fire, but if we don't appease the gods, it'll—you know it's not a perfect system of human sacrifice, but it's the best one we've been able to find, right? No matter how ridiculous that argument ever was in history, it was always made. I promise you, back when certain societies were sacrificing human beings to the gods, they said, I don't like it either, but what are you going to do? We don't want Ball to be pissed off and kill us all or starve us because they don't, don't send rain for the crops or whatever. And people will justify what keeps them comfortable. So we are highly entrenched. But the era is ending. The era is ending because we have reached a point where the futility of what we have built is becoming apparent. How how can you just keep watching a national debt grow into the tens of trillions of dollars and then still look at the currency that's underlying that debt and say that's a thing of value? You know, we have the debate in the Bitcoin community all the time, is it a means of exchange or a store of value? Well, if it's money, it has to be both. It has to be both. And even the U.S. dollar, as designed to work, which it pretty much hasn't, but a a, a standard inflation rate of 2% per annual. People say, well, see, it loses value every year. It's still a store of value. That's why you still have dollars in the bank. I guarantee everyone listening to me that would make that same. You also have dollars, and you hold them for more than a day because it's a store of value. A 2% inflation against your cap your cash, that's what you call your your cost of capital or your opportunity capital cost. In other words, if I want liquid cash around to capitalize when there's a decline in the market and I can buy something at a value, I have to keep some of that money not tied into something like real property or whatever. I have to have some of it liquid where I can act quickly because I don't know. The whole world gets scared of a cold and I want to buy a $40,000 car for $24,000, which is what I did. When COVID started. Right. Just walk in. Yeah, I want the blue one. Here's a check. See. You, right. That's that is having capital available. That's liquid. And there's a cost to that. Two percent. It's not perfect, but it's not that bad. And if it were constant, then economists could plan for it and you could figure out exactly how much capital to keep fully liquid, partially liquid and fully tied up, and it would be easy to do, and you would know that any investment that's higher than 2% is where I start actually earning money. But when inflation is 2% this year, 6% next year, 4% the year after that, that all starts to go out the window. That starts to go out the window. And now we get into a point where double-digit inflation sustained across multiple years is probably, there's probably no way for that not to happen. There's probably no way for that not to happen now. And that doesn't mean every year for multiple years. But, you know, five years, three years being double digit inflation is probably real inflation. Yeah. So there's some point where you have to just look at it and go, this is this doesn't work for the world anymore. And again, we have this huge arrogance in our country. We have this belief that it's well, it's better us than whoever scary person you put in to be Cobra Commander in GI Joe. Right. Well, if we don't do it, then then Vladimir Putin will do it. Okay. Where's the closest Russian military installation to U.S. territory, to the United States of America, our actual borders? And where's the closest U.S. military installation compared to Russia's borders? Where's the closest Chinese military base? to U.S. domestic territory versus U.S. military base relative to China's territory. This is not defending Russia or China. This is just saying, let's take a look at this, right? Uh, Builder of Castle says, up near Alaska. That's an interesting point. I would say Alaska is correct. And Alaska being close to Russia, that's, that's that's just a map thing, right? Let's try it another way. What is the closest U.S. military installation to Russia and China that exists somewhere other than in the United States itself? They're in somebody else's country. And what is the closest Russian base in some country other than Russia to the United States? You start to understand who exactly is the colonialists, right, or the imperialists out here that that are concerned with controlling everybody else's world. And we do it with our money. And I do think that this era is coming to an end. But this is the thing. There's multiple ways for this to end. End doesn't mean it all goes away. End means it doesn't exist in its current form. The United States dollar has been in its current form, some version thereof since 1913, which means in 1912, the currency that we had ended. The United States did go away. In fact, in many ways, the new currency system made the banks and the government far more powerful. post-1913, post-1964, post-1971. The other side of this, too, is, though, we tricked the world into letting us have all this power. When we made the deal for the U.S. dollar to be the reserve currency, it was hard money, and we promised not to do all the things that we've done. So the world itself, at some point, has to, Get off of this ride, but we really are in a place where ending the current system abruptly is painful for everybody, and that's why it's probably outlived itself by at least twenty years at this point, at least twenty years that that we probably would have been off of this if we weren't so entwined. And this is why we keep entwining further. This is why we insist on injecting ourselves into conflicts like the Ukraine conflict with Russia. If you really think we care about Ukrainians, you are crazy. You are crazy. And you believe the TV way too much. We compare, we care about United States capability and influence in the world both hard military and soft dollar-driven power. That's what we care about. That's all we care about. We're not defending Ukraine. Russia's not trying to take over Ukraine. Russia wants the Donbas region, which is Russian territory, whether you like it or not. Doesn't mean I like Putin. Doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I think Zelensky Zelensky is a tool of the WEF. It just is. Certain things are. So the way I see this ending is it will be painful and drawn out, and because it's drawn out, hopefully less painful. There has to be already in the minds of the people that run this system a plan to get out of it because they're not stupid either, and they know full well that they have to do it. And so what they're when you're looking for how, you have to say what would be the most benefit to them. When you think of the board of the Federal Reserve, the member banks, the giant oligarchies attached to them, the pharmaceutical companies, the media companies, the government bureaucracies, that's what I mean when I say them. And Jake says CBDC. And CBDC is what would be most beneficial to them money with built in surveillance and spending controls technology. In fact, that's what we should start calling it instead of CBDC, because we're we're getting to a point where people like it sounded scary when you first started talking about it. And people have heard it so much, mostly from us, by the way, which is quite ironic, to the point where it starts to go numb. Right. You start to like not really care anymore. If I brought you some, some food that tasted good, that you'd never had before in your life. The first day you eat it, you're like, oh, this is amazing. The second day, you're like it's still so really good. After a few weeks of having it every day, it's no longer special. You don't really care. It doesn't even taste as good as it did the first time. Your, 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 your taste buds have bec- begin to become numbed by it. You build up a tolerance to its flavors. And you start looking for something spicier or sweeter or whatever it is that attracted to you in the first place, right? That's what CBDC is becoming for people. Oh, it, it sounds horrible, but yeah, maybe it's not so bad after all. You're going to give me some of it? You're going to just give me money? It's going to be electronic. Well, those Bitcoin people said electronic is good. So that's good. And I just get some every month. It'll be in my bank account. And like I said, here's how you sell it to the right. Who has spending controls? That sounds awful. Well, we're going to make sure when we give people welfare that they don't spend it on drugs. All right. I'm all for that. You know, never think that eventually it'll be used against you. But what you really have is a monetary instrument. That is a surveillance tool of everybody that uses it every time that they use it, that you can redirect or control or manipulate any time that you want. And this is how they're going to try to sell it. See, if we have enough control of the monetary supply and the monetary flow and the velocity of money, we can get rid of these boom and bust cycles forever, which is exactly what they promised in nineteen. exactly what was promised in 1933 and exactly what was promised in 1971. Right. I mean, if you take a promise from government or the oligarchy on anything, you're not a very smart person. So I think what you end up with is two worlds pulling away from each other. You're going to have the U S attempting to roll out central bank digital currency, which is a, a surveillance Uh, a monetary instrument of surveillance and control. And at the same time, trying to do a delicate balance so that other nations will use it. And this is why I think they may very well still go through some form of a, of a FDIC embraced stable coin for this. But at the same time, you're going to have other nations going, I don't know if we want to do that anymore. I don't know if we want to do that anymore. You know, we can just use somebody else's payment method. And you are going to have nations more and more go toward Bitcoin. I know some of you don't believe that, but it's happening right now. Bitcoin is beginning to replace the banking system in a significant number of nations in Africa. And it's not something that most of the governments over there are really hip about. It's just their banks are failing. They're like, wait a minute. So I can do this thing myself? I can just, we can use this? We can have a means? Because the only thing that people really care about in economies is the ability to procure goods and services and to take what you provide to others and store that energy so that you can use it later so that you don't have to work every minute of every day for everything that you want, that you can work for a while and then not work for a while and have battery in between. That's what, that's what, that's what the ledger of economics that is a currency is. It is a means to store your energy, your time, or your goods that you have sold for a time so that you can use it later. That's all that it is. So there's there's people already figuring out we can just do we can just use bitcoin for that. Oh, okay, we'll do that. And so it's going to be an incredibly strange experience to watch this happen. And it's going to be a lot like the sci-fi concept of going into a black hole where you're already in it and it's already tearing you apart but you don't know it yet because it's all happening so slow that only an observer from outside of the effect of that singularity would be able to observe it happen to you. You can't observe it happening to yourself, but there'll be a point where you're going, Hey, it's starting to be a little painful as I can tore it into a string here. And then we'll become cognizant of the fact that it was already at play. And that's where gradually then suddenly comes from that when it becomes evident it's already it's already been in motion and i believe it is in motion right now that there's enough power and force in the world that's opposed to this and understand if you're opposed to it too that doesn't mean everybody opposed to it is your friend this is this is a battle because every nation or group of nations working together out there doesn't just that, that's part of this That's not, you know, some small country that's not part of a block. Wants to be the new reserve currency. Maine wants the Florida orange currency to go away and it wants it replaced with lobsters. Kansas wants the corn dollar. Yeah. California wants the, I don't know, heroin needle, used heroin needle dollar. Yeah. Texas wants the freaking, I don't know, horny toad dollar. Right, every Every state would want something they have a monopoly or near monopoly on to be the reserve standard because it would be to their advantage. So you're going to have China and Russia making a play to have a say in who the new big dog in the world economically is. And you're going to have a lot of other countries saying, well, maybe we maybe we don't need anybody to do this anymore. And so what are you going to do? Ted Cruz just authored a bill to outlaw CBDCs, says Jake. Right. But I'm sure Pito Joe will sign it. I'm not sure. Right. Republicans always talk tough when they can't pass a bill. Yeah. It doesn't matter anyway. They're not going to outlaw CBDCs. I'm not sure you could pass a law to do that as a law alone. I'm not going to get into that today. It might require a different type of action of government to say specifically what cannot be money for the federal government. Because the Constitution doesn't say anything about that. The Constitution says the states shall make nothing uh, money other than silver and gold. It doesn't say a word about what the federal uh, government can do for the U.S. dollar. Not at all. So you might actually need a constitutional amendment to place that restriction on government in the first place. And no, that would never get signed and and they would never go. You're right, Jake. They would never go for it once they actually had a chance. Like how many times did the the Republicans repeal Obamacare before they had the House, the Senate and the White House? The answer is seven. Seven times they voted for a full repeal. And the day they took over, they never did it again. Funny that, isn't it? Nothing's going to fix this. I'm going to suggest that everything that we've talked about over the years, you realize how important that is. Um, I'm listening or watching sometimes, listening a lot of other times to this uh, YouTube channel I really like. It's called Dexter's World. Dexter's World. And it's not the cartoon and it's not the guy that stabs serial killers and is a serial killer of serial killers. Uh, it's a dude from the Philippines. Really smart guy. He's heavily involved with agriculture stuff. He has, you know, they do chickens and ducks and aquaculture. I really like the stuff he's doing with the Zola, et cetera. And I was listening to one of his videos today and he was talking about getting started in business. And he was saying that like one of their most lucrative businesses that they have and all of these things that they're doing because they're growing all this food and, and stuff like that though, is actually ornamental fish. And that's where he would advise people to start because it's the easy thing to do, low capital investment. You know, here's a guy, he's, he's, you know, living in the Philippines He he looks like he's doing fairly well for himself, but he started with almost nothing. He was telling the whole story there about how broke he was. And what he said is we need to keep expanding our business. We need to keep going into different niches. We need to keep being creative. We need to keep reinvesting back into our business because of inflation, because inflation is so bad now. We need more, not less money. That's the approach that dude that's living in the third world. That's building all of these systems of production as an entrepreneur. That's the model to follow. No matter where you live, no matter where you live here in America, some other country, we have people that listen from all over the world. That's the model is you need to be building your own income streams, your own skill sets, your own place. And guys, one more time, when this shit goes down and it will. Just look at every problem we have and understand it's going to get worse. And then also look at where we are as an empire. And that is the last days of the empire. We are sending hundreds of billions of dollars to countries that we know are squandering our money. And we have roads and bridges and overpasses that are on their last legs and ready to fall apart. We have a giant train derailment, one of the greatest environmental disasters to ever ever occur in the country. And our government's response was, well, this one's really bad, but don't overreact to this train derailment. We have about three of those a day. Oh, I see. Three of those a day. And we do. That's about, there's roughly a little over a thousand train derailments in the United States a year. The United freaking States of America can't keep its trains literally on the rail, let alone on time, let alone on time. Can't keep them on the rails. Critical infrastructure falling apart. You know what else is critical infrastructure? I don't like the system, but I'll admit that it's critical infrastructure for any country. Education. Education is part of the strategic critical infrastructure of a society. Doesn't mean the way you're doing it's right or wrong. It just means it is. The ability to have the next generation capable of functioning and running things by the time they're 20 years of age or thereabouts is incredibly strategically important to a country. And look at ours. Not only is our critical infrastructure from a standpoint of streets and bridges and roads, et cetera, in decay. The critical infrastructure that is our school system is in critical decay based on what it's supposed to produce. Functional adults that are capable of thinking and acting for themselves. It is in complete. While we spend more and more money on it, we keep pouring more money into it. We keep investing into it. We pay teachers more. We build new wings to schools. We build more schools. Now we have schools closing because people are vacating the system. This is an empire in its last days, and if you go look at every empire that failed, it all follows the same pattern, we've stopped valuing women, we really have, we've stopped, and that is a common thing that happens, you know, Rome had women in blood sports right before it fully collapsed, you deal with that as you will, we, you know, we, we don't, We don't value the family anymore either. We don't value the family. We have an entire movement on both sides, male and female, about not having kids. Like kids are some kind of a burden. And everybody acts like if you have a couple kids, you'll be financially destitute for the rest of your life. And in some ways, they are a financial strength. And that's by design. But when you get to a point where you can't educate the next generation and half of the people capable of producing the next generation don't even want to participate in it. You are at the end of an empire. You are standing at the end of the great U.S. empire hegemony. And it's the way I can say that confidently is because every single empire of the past, when you look at it right before it breaks down and falls apart and crumbles, it always looks the same. The things that that nation did that were the envy of the world are the first things to begin to collapse. When, When Dwight Eisenhower came back to this country after the war, became the president, and said we will have an interstate highway system equal to what I saw in Germany, Our transportation system in this country became the envy of the world. It isn't anymore. It's crumbling. And we will see more and more people injured because of that, more and more disasters because of that. We have only begun to see this. We have food production facilities all over this country blowing up constantly, catching on fire constantly. Some people think that's a direct attack. It's possible. It is more likely that we have literally stopped investing in new tech. And we're just running things out to the very end because every penny of profit is important to the balance sheet so we can sell more stock. That's what an empire looks like at the end. Here's the key thing. This is when you always know you're at the end of an empire. And this is true of well-known empires, like in China, in Rome, uh, the Mongolian Golden Horde, like the well-known ones. And this is true of lesser-known tribal empires right here in America, like the Inca and the Mexia and the Maya. Every single time when you get to the point where you are about to have an empire completely collapse, the main hallmark of that is the people in power put more effort into maintaining power than they do into solving the problems that threaten their power. You got that? So your people are unhappy because they don't have these basic resources. Instead of fixing that problem, which is why you have a threat to your power, you simply expand your power. You increase your power. You become more tyrannical. You put in more protection of the power that you have. You pass new laws. You create new edicts. You use emergencies to create temporary powers that become permanent. This always, and I mean ad finim, always, a million percent, always precedes the death of an empire. Now ask yourself right now, I don't care what initials after their name, bureaucrats, politicians, media, oligarchy, science, all of it. What are they doing and what have they been doing for the last five years? Which of these statements is more accurate? They are doing their best to solve the problems of the country and the population. Or B, they are doing the best they can to not lose their grip of control. Which one is more true? It's B. They're doing everything they can not to lose their grip and their control on society. And the minute you turn that corner, you have gone past the inevitable end. Because this is the other thing about that. It is almost impossible for a system of controllers to make that turn and ever turn back into it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, you have a choice when you're running a country and you're part of the elite that are running that country. When you get to that point where Okay, we're having a lot of things break down. We can either fix them or we can increase our control. And you, you do have a choice, when you. but once you make that choice, it is almost impossible for the apparatus of control to double back on that and change once they've made it. Because everything they do to increase their control increases resentment and anger among the governed. So I need more control to push that back in. And if I remove control before I fix a problem, which I already know I can't fix because I'm already proven myself incompetent for generations of not fixing the problem. If I back off of that control, I end up with a revolution, an insurrection of some kind. That's what happens. So I have to maintain the control by increasing the ability to control. And where is left? What's left? Think about how much control that they have right now. They control what you eat. I know a lot of you make your own individual choices. So do I. But in general, the average person, what they eat is actually somebody else planned it and has it set up as a system of control. How many people eat garbage food because they think, they think they can't afford to not? That would be one instance of that. Yeah. So they control what you eat. They control where you go to school. Based on where you were born. What don't they control? They tax everything. The, old, but, the but if you think about if you're thinking about any of the, the things that I'm asking you about their control of and you say, but for me, they don't control that. For me, the primary means by which you get around their control is what? It's economics directly or indirectly. Directly, I just, I'm not I'm not driving their little piece of shit puddle jumper car. I bought a good car and I can afford it. And I don't care that it costs more money for gas for it because I can afford I don't care. I got money, right? Or if it's indirect. Well, they tell me what I have to eat, but I grow my own food. Well, where do you grow your own food? On my property. Where'd you get your property? Well, you bought it. If you can control the money, then you have total control. When without even touching you, I can just go, huh, Jack Spierko, what a jerk. He's not spending any money for a week. Right now, for instance, I'm banned from Twitter again, yeah, and it's it's an automated ban, and it's stupid, because I don't even think it's something you would get banned for if anybody actually did their job there, right? Uh, somebody posted a video, and it was some jackass blowing a whistle behind a surgical mask, as, and I think Marjorie Taylor Greene was talking, so he was just blowing the whistle to interfere with her. And I'm not a huge fan of her or anything, but that's just an asshole move. And I said, I made a comment that was like somebody should punch him in his mouth so he could choke on his whistle. And I guess it was flagged as violence, inciting violence or something, so they threw me out for a week. So I spent more time on Nostra this week and stack more Satoshis. Okay, no problem. But what if that was my bank account? Oh, wrong thing, Mister Spirko. Well, we'll leave a little bit of money for bread and water available to you this week, and we'll go ahead and prepay your 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 landlord for you because we want to make sure that gets paid. Oh, and you're going to pay your taxes. The rest of your money, we're just going to put you on a seven day lock so you remember to think. But you don't think that that's what they can exactly what they can do with the CBDC, oh, uh, Mister Spirko? Look at you're buying. We don't like your money being spent on ammo. We're just going to, you don't get to buy any ammo this year. Your money just won't work with anybody that sells it. And you think it, it'll matter. You think the person behind the cash register won't matter in that situation in Texas. Here's one more thing and we'll wrap up. One of the stupid things we still have in the state of Texas is the old Sunday blue laws. We still have some of them around. And And one of them is you can't buy liquor like, you know, whiskey or whatever, on sunday but you can buy beer and wine on sunday after noon apparently 11:59 a.m jesus is offended that you bought a bottle of wine 12 p.m it's okay only rational i can come up with for it so if you're in a grocery store in Texas, and it's Sunday, you're going to go home and watch football, you really weren't paying attention to the clock, you grab all your shit, and you're like, hey, Bill's coming over, let me grab a 12-pack, so you grab a 12-pack of beer, throw it in your your car- cart, and you get up to pay, and they're ringing your shit up, and it's 11:58. The cash register just will not let the clerk ring it up. It's just programmed in there. It's just programmed in there. Beep! Oh, can't buy it. What? What do you mean I can't buy it? It's not new. And you're like, oh, if you live here, you're like, oh damn it. And I've literally had that experience. I've been like, well, what time is it? And he's like, eleven fifty-seven. Okay, set that there. Ring everything else up, and we're gonna stand here. But what if twelve never came? You think that somebody's gonna sell you something and risk losing their freaking minimum wage times two job? To go out on a limb for you to take payment that won't go in the system? Are you kidding me? That's exactly what's going on here, guys. We're heading for a place where they want total monetary control. They want total monetary control. And they're going to get a large degree of it. And I'm listening to people in the Bitcoin space right now, and they're telling me, I'll never take CBDCs. Yeah, you will. Yeah, you will. And and the more Bitcoin becomes worth, the probably the less, the more likely you'll be to accept a CBDC as a payment for something. As long as you can buy what you want with it, because readily available currencies are used. And you won't want to spend your Bitcoin. You won't want to spend your Bitcoin. Barry McNockinger, this isn't a Bitcoin episode, but I'll give you a quick answer to your question. He says, honest question, can Bitcoin be utilized for money laundering? Of course it can you know what else can be used for money laundering? Money. Any form of money can be utilized in money laundering. It's actually a, it's actually really not a very intelligent question, if you think about it. What do I use to launder money if I don't have Bitcoin? I use money. I use a business. I route the money through a business. What's that thing? Ozark. Go watch Ozark and learn how that works. Anything can be used to launder money. The number one thing to use to launder money. In the Northeast United States for a long time was, believe it or not, laundromats. I won't go into that today. But, yeah, there was a whole money laundering syndicate that used laundromats to launder money in. It was a thing. You can look it up if you doubt me. Anyway, I I really implore those of you who are still in what I call flashpoint cities, get out. Because every problem we have as this continues to happen, we'll get worse. And if you think about it, that's what's happening. We're in the frickin' singularity of the black hole and the money going down the hole. We're already over the, the ridge. The difference is you actually can move outside of the direct impacted area and watch the destruction with with some protection, some level of shielding of yourself. And you don't have to go all the way down the hole. For now, getting out is going to become harder. But just like I said that in every society that's an empire about to fall, the people in power choose to go to hold their power rather than fix the problems. The other thing that always happens is by the very nature of that is the problems get worse. Every problem that you can see around you will be worse five years from now than it is right now if it's a systemic, structural, systemic problem. In other words, if there is a street right now in your town that if you walk down it from one end to the other, you're highly likely to be robbed or molested in some way, odds are five years from now it will be more dangerous to walk down that street. If you have trouble affording living where you are now, it will be more that you will have trouble affording to live where you are in five years. There is going to be a point at which everybody realizes what most of you already know. Okay. Most of you already know a lot of the things that we're talking about today. You know how bad the situation is. You know that the U S can never repay its debt. You know that we can never repay even the private debts in this country. You know there's not enough money there. You know there's not enough money in the banks to cover the deposits. There's not a single, let me say this again, there's not a single bank that if every depositor wanted their money today, could cover it. You're, most of you are aware of that, okay? <laughs> most people, though, are not. And there will come a point where the masses of society will have the awakening that most of you guys did at some point in this. At some point, the reason you're interested in preparedness, self-sufficiency and all, is at some point you woke up and went, gee, everything's not super. And you probably freaked out. You probably turned on shit like Alex Jones or something like that. Eventually you found people like me. This makes sense. I'm going to design a non-brittle, resilient life. And that was your approach. But you had a freak out moment. Now, I want you to imagine yourself. If you were ever completely asleep, if you weren't born into a forever family, the day that you really switched on to how screwed up everything was and decided I need to have some level of preparedness in my life. Think right back to that moment. Think about the emotions and the fear. And the only thing that checked it at all was it was just you. And most people around you went, dude, chill even if they were wrong, their calmness had an effect on you. Now, imagine when you had that freaky moment and you went to your first friend and said, hey, did you know this and this and this? Instead of being like an initiate, what it was all like, hey, yeah, that's actually all a problem. And we have ways we can deal with that. It wasn't an informed person. It was a person that had no idea either, but they believed everything you said. And they went, holy shit, what are we going to do? And then you guys went and told somebody else. And they went, holy shit, what are we going to And if everybody around you woke up like that at the same time. Now what? Now what happens? Well, all hell breaks loose. That's the gradually then suddenly. And we are rapidly going into a point where the average idiot will become informed enough to know how bad things really are. And sadly, it will probably be part of the plan. And the very people saying, don't worry about it. We'll be like that person I played for you today feeding the fear to sell the solution. And I'm going to tell you what, you don't want to be around those people when they figure out how fucked we are. You don't want to be in a major city that's already had riots and burning in the streets. You don't want to be in that place. And there's always the, the, this, this need that people have to make that like a racial thing. I don't care what color the people are that are setting buildings on fire. You don't want to be where the buildings are on fire. Okay? And we know where the buildings will burn now. There will probably be more places. But you can bet that all the places that burned, all the places with smashed windows, all the places with riots, From the last time it happened, when this happens, those places will burn again. Get out. Get out. Get out. If you don't, don't cry to me in a few more years about the fact that you can't get out, which is something I already hear from people, by the way. I can't can't find anything. You found what you have. (laughs) Find something else. Really, guys, uh, tomorrow we'll be a little bit more proactive. We'll be talking more about, like, backyard-level stuff and things like that. I just wanted to to talk about this because I have a sneaking suspicion over the next few weeks you're going to hear a lot more about this. It doesn't mean that it's all going to come to a head in the next few weeks. But I think over the next few weeks, up until this summer, I think you're going to hear a lot more about global reserve status of the United States dollar the continuing expansion of the relationship between Russia and China, the continuing rise of the influence of the BRICS nations. And somebody here said something I just want to close with. I I didn't really read it, but I I got the the gist. It was you know, some experts saying China can't go on the way it is. It can't last. It won't make it another 10 years. These people are, stop listening to these people. They don't know what they're talking about. China could lose half of its population, and it would still have three quarters of a billion people. And we still have tremendous amounts of power and natural resources. China's not going away. India's not going away. Russia's not going away. The United States isn't going away. But the, the inter-strategic and power relationships in the world are shifting right now. And they have to because that shift is a continuous cycle that never ends. With that, we've wrapped things up. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Are they going bail you out?